Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Coaching with the Bible. This is episode 181, season 4, episode 21. Our topic of the week on managing the bottom 20%. This is a great leadership topic. We're going to talk about some really, really interesting things. But first, as we've decided to do in the last couple of weeks, a win and a learning. So the win for this week for me is something super bizarre that happened to me just today. Um, which is that I reassembled the um, the sink in my kitchen. Uh, I am super not handy. Uh, so this was like a real victory for me because I'm so bad at this stuff. I have these sort of uh, terrible memories in my mind of trying to hang up pictures um, in our first apartment and just bashing the wall with holes and always, always, always having to call someone to come do the simplest tasks around the house, even though I try to convince myself that I can do them. So today, a little bit of plumbing was actually my little victory uh, for the week, my win for the week. And maybe it'll make uh, my dad, who at some point in his life was an apprentice plumber, um, proud that that's even possible. Yes, I, I put together the drain, the pipe uh, under the sink, and yay for me. That's my win for the week. There are probably some others, but that's you know a unique one and a weird one and probably makes the point, um, which is that the wins could be really anything. The learning for the week is this. Uh, I found that celebrating other people's wins uh, was also really valuable. And so someone reached out to me to connect on LinkedIn this week. And in responding, and this is something that I do, uh, in, in sending them just a quick message, uh, thanking them for reaching out to you know, to ask to connect or for the reverse where I've asked and they've accepted for accepting my uh, connection request. In this case, uh, I asked the question because they asked to connect with me and I simply just win for the week. And you never know if someone's going to respond. Um, but the learning here was that they shared a nice little win and it was meaningful to, you know, even connect on a win for somebody that I don't even know, barely met, and simply just connected with the click of a button on a platform like, like LinkedIn. So that was really cool. Their win was simply that they got their nonprofit leader, they got their summer program registration completed in February, um, which I think is actually a big deal. Anyway, our topic of the week is on the topic of managing the bottom 20%. So this comes up in the following way. I, I, one of the books that I completed fairly recently is The Score Takes Care of Itself, which is the leadership um, manifesto uh, principles book of Bill Walsh, who was the coach of the San Francisco 49ers during the 80s, won four Super Bowls, legendary football coach. I've mentioned him a few times uh, in the podcast, and um, I share his book widely because I think there's a lot of genius inside the book. And like a month ago or so, so I completed it and put up a, a, a brief review with some really great quotes on LinkedIn and recommended it as reading for others. In the book, he has a section, a very small section, uh, that deals with how do you manage the bottom 20% of your team. And he makes the point, which I think is an interesting point, which sort of relates to the idea of the Pareto principle, which is the 80-20 rule, which is that 80% uh, of X happens because of 20% of Y. And so take, for example, 80% uh, uh, of your problems come from 20% uh, of the people. 80% of the money is going to come from 20% of your customers. 
so on and so forth. The Pareto principle is the 80-20. There's actually an additional one, which is the 90-10, that 90% of your problems come from 10% of the population. Okay, either one. And it, if it basically, he asks the question is, why is it that the 20%, the bottom 20%, that group of people control the emotional power of the team when they are the vocal minority. That's a term you will talk about today, the vocal minority. What's going on? How does that work? Why does that work? And he actually doesn't quite understand the why of it. Why is that true? He just knows that it is true, that what is true is that you have players on the team who are at best role players. You need them. They're there. But they have this uncanny ability to bring down the emotional tenor, the fire, the excitement, the focus of the majority of the players. And he can't figure out why. But he has a method to his madness as to how to manage it. We'll get to that at the end. When I read it, and this is sort of something you've come to learn about me as well, I immediately connected it to something in the Bible. And I'm sort of addicted to that sort of uh, uh, interplay between the things that I'm reading and the biblical or the Talmudic or the, just the Jewish connection, right? The spiritual Jewish connection uh, to those things. And immediately it connected it to something that takes place in this portion, which is the story of the golden calf. And specifically the notion that the group of people who perpetrated and instigated and set off the story of the golden calf are what were known in the Hebrew as the Erev Rav. It's sort of what in English would be called a mixed multitude. Basically, it's a very small population of people who were not members of the 12 tribes, who were not born into the Jewish people, the people of Israel, the people that were slaves. They came along for the ride upon the departure from Egypt. So there's this like, I don't know, Extra tribe, almost, this group of people. It's not a large group. It's a small group of people, very small group of people who simply joined the people as they left. Now, it's amazing that they joined. It's perhaps more amazing that the people of Israel let them join or that Moses didn't stop them or that God didn't tell them, hey, guys, like this is as far as we go. But let's think about what they experienced. They went through the water. They saw all the plagues. They saw Egypt die. They stood at Sinai. They saw uh, the revelation at Sinai. They saw the, the, the two tablets, the whole shebang. And then they instigate the disaster that is the story of the golden calf. A minority, vocal minority, unleash a social and behavioral contagion in the population that leads to an utter disaster on the ground. You can describe the social contagion or the behavioral contagion, or whatever that is. It's basically it's the, the, the aberrant behavior that ensued, whether that was um, spontaneous or under the surface, doesn't matter. But this vocal minority did that. And so that vocal minority is what we'll call the bottom 20%. They're that group of people. And the question really is, in the time that we have, is what, do we, what is that and what do we do with it, right? 
What is it? Why does that happen? Right? We'll get to the why of why that happens. And then we'll talk briefly about two approaches, how to handle it, one preemptively, and then one post. Um, what's the opposite of preemptive? I don't know. It's certainly not postemptive. That is not a word. But here we go. So what is a vocal minority? And that's what really this is. And we'll talk then at the end about really, um, we'll flip it over actually, and we'll talk for just briefly about the positivities that exist in a vocal minority. And it's important for you as a leader, uh, as a leader in business, a leader in community, a leader in your home, a teammate, a spouse, whatever, to really appreciate what this is. And so what's a vocal minority? A vocal minority uh, can steer the ship of public opinion with the just the energy of their passion and persistence. They are the voices that, despite, despite their small size and number, echo very loudly across society, and they challenge us to listen and even sometimes challenge us to, to change. You can think about that now. You have the vocal minority and the flip is the silent majority, right? Those two things sort of go hand in hand. And a lot of the time what you'll see in countries or what you'll hear in the body politic is the idea that why doesn't the silent majority speak up? Why are they allowing this vocal minority to control the landscape, to control the conversation? It's a really, it's a great question, but you see it all the time. Powerful minorities in terms of numbers, not minorities in terms of ethnicity. Powerful minorities in terms of numbers. So you'll have, um, you know, government parties on the extremes, on the right and on the left, that are pulling, really tugging and pulling a, a, a country in a certain direction. We certainly have that here uh, in Israel. Uh, certainly is the case in a lot of other Western democracies today as well, where the extremes, which are minority number of population that are uber loud, which are controlling the agenda and controlling the stream. So why is that? It's like, what's sort of the vocal, what's the, like the, the, the foundation of of that influence, right? That's sort of the question that we would ask. And so when we think about it, it's really, it's sort of built on four things. It's like, I would call it, you know, maybe four, four pillars or sort of like a, a multidisciplinary kind of thinking about the vocal minority. So number one is the psychology. That the reality of it is that these different biases that come up in these conversations and social identity that's wrapped around them they shape our perception. So they make us more susceptible to the vocal minority's influence. Number two is really this sort of a sense of logic that through uh, compelling arguments and strategic communication, the vocal minorities are able to craft a narrative that resonates and persuades. You can also imagine that if they get the right mix in their vocal minority, right? Obviously, they're going to be louder than the, than the, than the larger population. Maybe they have a couple of well-known uh, personalities participating with them. Maybe they have uh, a good grasp of the technology or the social tools that are available. They're able to push levers or tell very powerful stories that help. The third pillar is really philosophical. So there is this balance between the majority rule and minority rights that challenge us to consider the value of diverse perspectives. So what happens is that on some level, the vocal minority is playing on and toying with 
the notion that the majority has to have that balance and can't have what you might call the tyranny of the majority. We have to protect the rights of minorities, ethnic minorities, and also vocal minorities. We have to give people the space to talk and to share and to opine and to protest and whatever that may be. And so playing on that ethic that the majority has plays to their advantage. And then there's the sociology behind this, sort of the fourth pillar here, which is that the power of social networks and media uh, amplify minority voices. What basically are turning these whispers into roars, you can, you can almost see it. There's one person standing there in the corner somewhere where they got the megaphone and it's facing exactly the right angle. And now they're suddenly much, much louder than they were before because that's the sociology behind it. And so you have to sort of think about how this all works, but it all does work and it plays against the majority. What's interesting to note about this, and we can go much deeper into all those different pillars here. Um, not a psychologist, I'm just a coach, but it's interesting to sort of understand how that works and how powerful it actually is is it's interesting to understand from the science as to when exactly it tips. At what point does a vocal minority actually have influence? So if it's one person standing in the dark somewhere, yelling and screaming, probably they get ignored. If it's a few people, maybe they get ignored less. So where does it hit? So it was a study that was done in a number of environments. One of the environments that the study was done in related to women in the workforce. I think it was specifically around women in, on sales teams. And when did it tip that this minority population felt comfortable, the culture started to shift? And apparently, according to the data, it shifted at around 25% or above 25%. When the group got to about a quarter of the size of the overall group, it starts to tip a little bit in their favor. There were additional studies that were done on the subject that went much deeper, and they're definitely worth uh, looking at to sort of understand the science of that. And effectively, what ends up happening, depending on the situation, what ends up could be the tyranny of the minority rather than the tyranny of the majority. So what ends up happening is that the extremes are able to wield what you would call an outsized power in the face of the majority, and you'll, wonder, you'll be left wondering why. But you will wonder why. And so what you then have is those things that are going on. So take the case of the people in the desert. They're anxious. They're stressed. Moses is, quote, unquote, late. Uh, they just had this massive revelation. They just left Egypt. Their psyche is tenuous, maybe at best. Um, this is a hard moment. And this group, who's maybe related to that, just shoves it over the edge with this sense that they need something tangible to lead them, and that's the golden calf. Go into your work environment. Is there a person, let's say you're on a large team, it's a few people who are exceptionally loud about, take your pick, um, the length of hours in the day, low pay, um, shortage of vacation days, coming back to the office for full-time now. And there's this vocal minority, and it just gets loud. You, you just can't make it go away, or you can ignore it away. 
what do you do with these kinds of things? There are societal situations where it starts off, and this is sort of on the other edge of this, where it starts off as a very small vocal minority and then actually does tip. So at, at certain points, let's say, on the, the early stages of the Me Too movement, it's a very small piece of the population that was vocal and loud about it. And then there was just, just a flood. Maybe it went too far, but there was a flood of activity, accusations of, uh, of protest, of participation, of people being called out, of people being punished for their wrongdoings over time. And it was a flood in that way. We saw it here with the, uh, the, the, the sexual um, terrorism, for lack of a better term, that, the, that, the, that Hamas perpetrated against many of the women at the Nova Festival and what's reported uh, on the hostages. That initially there was no voice, people, no one was talking about it. Then you had a few voices. It was a very vocal minority of people from here that started to then cause a, a growth and a flood of activity, at least, and it's the vocalization of the subject in the public manner. So then what do you do with the vocal minority? How do you handle it? So there's the preemptive and the post. The pre is the idea, sorry, the post is the more obvious one, is where you're too late to the party and um, you didn't, you just weren't ready for it, and now what do you do? Right? What do you do? And so the truth is here, you really have to listen, you have to understand, and then you have to learn, then you have to focus on some sort of healing, and you have to put some sort of an action into place. So what I would say is there's an adaptation period where you're hearing what's going on, uh, you're listening to the cross-section of voices and communities and organizations about what happened. So you're trying to adapt. It's sort of an adaptive leadership moment. Then, if it was bad, there's a healing component here as well. You really have to get people to bring in experts and to have those conversations and talk about mentorship and buddy systems, let's say, that get people of diverging uh, uh, viewpoints together to talk. And then, of course, there's learning. That is certainly one way. The other way is the preemptive mode, which is the Bill Walsh way in the book, where he knew this group existed, but he also knew that in his case, he needed those people for two reasons. One, um, because of the impact that they had on the majority, and two, because the role they actually would play, a positive role that they potentially could play at the moment that you absolutely need them, and you need them and you won't have this minority uh, uh, voices, but all this just sort of like this negative uh, minority that exists on the team. So he would act out front. And he would highlight them. He would talk about them in their great moments. He'd catch them doing the right things. He'd even give them money, right? And so he would put a $100 bill out there. At the time, that was actually some money for a football player, especially the marginal guys. And he would reward them for it. And so he was trying to basically put himself in a position to be on their good side, quote unquote, to keep them close to the vest so that when their moment came, they would be ready and that they would do something for the team and not mess up. And so there's two approaches. There's a pre and a post before, with respect to the tipping point around the vocal uh, minority. And I think it's worth thinking about how you go about doing those kinds of things and how you think about those things with respect to your own. Like, again, it could be as small as, you know, this, the, the small voices of your children in your home, um, but it could go as far as your teams in your office, and it could go even further 
uh, into just the entire community around you in terms of how you see those things, how you listen to those things, how you adapt to them, how you react to them, and then how you, in some cases, repair after the vocal minority has wielded its social contagion and its behavior uh, and had its impact on everybody else. And we'll end, though, with a quote, which is a quote that we mentioned before, um, but worth mentioning again. It's a quote, actually, I'll give you two quotes. It's a quote from Margaret Mead and a quote from Harvey Milk, because I do think that on some level, there is, in, some, in many, many cases, a value to the vocal minority, that they give us uh, pause and they make us think. And the reality of it is, is that these groups do have impact. And in some cases, their impact is actually quite profound and important uh, with respect to society. So the Margaret Mead quote is the one we've had before. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. It's one of my favorite quotes of all time. And then the second quote comes from Harvey Milk. Harvey Milk was the legislature in the, I think it was the state senate, sorry, the city council in San Francisco. He was uh, openly gay um, at the time, which was a big deal when it was the case in the 70s when he was there. And he made the statement, rights are won only by those who make their voices heard, which in his case was, on some level, at least initially, a lone voice. In, in many of these social change issues, it does begin with a lone voice. And so stepping into that kind of a space, right, stepping into those situations, uh, engaging in those conversations, the necessity of putting voice uh, to thought, to idea, really bridges, uh, divides, and creates opportunities for amazing leadership uh, in the world. That is coaching the Bible for this week. Have a great week. Look forward to seeing you 